Father, we, um, we're just so grateful to be here this morning, grateful to be able to enter into your presence, Lord, grateful for the Son and your creation, and grateful for your Son. We pray that as we open your word this morning that you would speak to each one of our hearts, Lord Jesus. We ask that in your name. Amen. Well, last night during, um, during our Saturday night prayer meetings, the Lord put something on my heart that I want to share this morning. It's sort of outside of our, of our normal lesson. And I don't want to say that it's a word from the Lord, but I'm not saying it isn't either. Um, but I think there's someone here who just may need to hear this. I was thinking about Romans chapter 7. And remember in the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul's talking about the struggle that he's having and, and living out his Christian faith. And right, he basically says, I, I, I'm, I'm trapped in this, in this cycle of sin. The things that I, that I, that I want to do, the things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing those things because I'm too busy doing the things that I know I shouldn't be doing. He says in verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that sound familiar at all? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. And then he says in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Does that ring true for any of you? Ever feel like you're caught in this cycle that he's talking about here? And, and, and as you're going through the ringer over and over and over again, you're left feeling just, just broken and, and, and worthless. Maybe even in a position where you're, where you're doubting your faith. I think a lot of us can find ourselves in this position. And that's why I love so much what Paul says in the very next verse there in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you guys to hear that. I want you to receive that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, he says in verse 2, has set you free. Free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. I just felt like somebody here needed to hear that this morning, and I wanted to share that before we pick up our text in John chapter 11. As we get into um, the text this morning... We're looking at, as you know, for the last couple times in John, we've been in John 11, looking at this passage dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is our, our third installment here of John chapter 11. First, we looked at John, 1, John 11, 1 through 28, where we saw Jesus called to minister to Lazarus. And remember, we saw him purposely delay. We saw him let Lazarus die on purpose. And then we saw this, this interaction that Jesus had with Martha. And we hear Jesus tell her that he is the resurrection and the life. And he says, Martha, do you believe this? 
Last week we looked up to verse 44. We saw Mary in this encounter that she had with Jesus. We saw Lazarus called out of the grave after four days. And as we pick up the text here in verse 45, that's the setting, right? Lazarus has just been resurrected from the dead. Jesus had just said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes essentially hopping out of the tomb, still wrapped up like a mummy. And remember, Jesus says, somebody unwrap this poor guy. But we saw the point of the story of Lazarus was that sometimes... God delays things for divine purposes. We saw that the Lord delayed arriving so that he could do something miraculous for Mary and Martha's good. I guess it wasn't really for Lazarus's good, was it? He had to come back from paradise, only to have to die again. I guess it's kind of a bummer for him. I learned something new, actually, that was kind of interesting. In all the early Christian artwork, Lazarus was always depicted, he was always painted with a frown. I, I, I guess, wouldn't you be? If you had been in paradise, you got brought back to this life, only to die again. But we saw Jesus delay, and he seemed late according to human timing. But we saw that he was right on time, according to God's divine time schedule. Mary and Martha found that they just needed to trust Jesus and wait in his perfect timing. They didn't need anything else. They didn't need to go anywhere else. They needed Jesus. They needed an encounter with their Lord. I heard a story sometime back. There was this um, prominent Roman senator. And, and as the story goes, he had a rebellious son. He was off partying, doing all this stuff. And, the, and this Roman senator, he was embarrassed by his son. And he was upset. So he called his lawyer in. And he wrote his son out of the will. And so when the Roman senator died, his will is read. And as it's read, of course, the son is, he's, he's upset by it. He's shocked. In the will, it was revealed that the head slave, Marcellus, was set to inherit everything that the senator owned. And so Marcellus, he's all giddy, he's excited. The son, he's upset. But there's a little footnote at the bottom of the will that said, but my son can pick one thing that he wants, any one thing out of my estate. So the lawyer asked the son, what does he want? And he said, I want Marcellus. <laughs> right? We can go after a lot of things in life. But none of them last. But if we go after Jesus, if we seek him first, we get everything else in the package, don't we? We get all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And that's the gospel message. That's the free gift of God. And we're going to see that unfold a little bit in the coming verses. We pick up the, verse, the text in verse uh, 45. Remember, Lazarus has just come forth just been resurrected after four days. And it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Can you believe that? I heard a story once 
back in the prohibition days. There was a professor, and he was preaching against the evils of alcohol. And he took two bowls, and one of the bowls, he filled it with whiskey. And in the other bowl, he filled it with water. And he put a worm in each bowl. And the worm that went in the bowl of water crawled out and lived. The worm that was in the bowl of whiskey, it died. I don't know if it passed out and drowned or what happened. But so the professor says, you know, what, what lessons do we learn from this, from this situation? And one of the students raised his hand. He said, if we drink whiskey, we won't get worms. <laughs> right? Sort of a misunderstanding in the message. He didn't really get the point of the lesson there. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see here in these verses. Everyone here was at the same event. Some people got the lesson and believed, and some didn't. And think about that for a minute. These people, they actually literally saw Lazarus come walking out of the tomb after four days. I remember Mary said, he stinketh, right? He was in there for a while. He was dead and decaying already. And everybody knew that he was dead. They heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out and they still don't believe. It reminds me a little bit of the account in Luke chapter 16. And you may remember this story. As it happens, this account is also of a guy named Lazarus. But I don't want you to be mistaken. This is a different Lazarus. When I read that and there's two Lazaruses, I actually researched it because that's how I roll. And it turns out that Lazarus was the third most common name in Jesus' time. The first most common name was Simon. Second most common name is Joseph, Joe. Who knew? Then Lazarus, Judas. That didn't last long, by the way. There's a sharp decline in the Judases shortly after this. John and Josh, Yeshua, Jesus, right? Most common names. And also, interestingly, of the nine most common names, I didn't include the last three, but of the nine most common names, almost 42% of the males were named one of those names. It's crazy, isn't it? Anyway, nothing to do with the text, except I like things like that, and I know three of you do too. Um, so, different Lazarus here, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. So Jesus, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it's about 19 to 32, somewhere in there. But there's a story of these, of these two guys that die. One of them's name is Lazarus. He's a poor guy. He was a beggar. He was obviously diseased. He had sores all over him. And it says that the dogs would come and lick his wounds. A pretty low on the social ladder type guy. And there's this other guy, this rich young ruler. It says that he, that he dressed in purple. Right? He was, that, was the, that was the high fashion of the day. Right? He was dressed in Armani. Talks about how he, he dined sumptuously, that he was, he was feasting, he, he had everything. And so they both die, and essentially they go to hell. Then it says they go to Hades. And, and Hades, just to kind of explain it, you can kind of think of it like this. If you commit a felony and you get arrested, right, you go to county lockup for a while while you're in trial. 
And after you're sentenced and found guilty, you get sentenced to prison. Right? That's sort of the relationship with Hades and hell. Right? Hades is sort of this county lockup until the final judgment day when sinners go to hell. But within that, according to scripture, there's a place called Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom is a paradise where the Old Testament saints would go when they died until Jesus' time. When Jesus came and when he was dead, he went into Hades and preached the gospel in Abraham's bosom and led captivity captive and went to heaven and all that. So anyway, just a little clarity there so you understand what's going on. So these two guys, Lazarus and the rich young ruler, they're there and they're, they're sort of separated. And Abraham apparently is there and the rich young ruler says, man, I look across there and I see paradise. I see Lazarus over there and I'm so thirsty. Send him over here with a sip of water for me. Just dip his finger in a drip of water and put it on my tongue. It's sort of a side note, by the way. I know some people don't believe in hell. Jesus did. He believed it was real. He believed people were conscious there and it was hot. Right? So... He's there, and he says, send him over so I can get a drink of water. And Abraham says, you see the chasm? It's too great. We can't cross it. You died. It's too late. You are where you are. And the guy says, well, listen, send Lazarus back to my father's house because I have five brothers there. Preach the gospel to them so that they can repent so they don't end up here. And Abraham says to him, well, let him read Moses. Let them read the law and the prophets. Let them study the word on their own so they'll repent. And then he says this in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then in verse 31 he says, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham says, look, if they don't believe the word of God, they're not going to believe miracles either. And that's exactly what we see here in John chapter 11, isn't it? These people saw a different Lazarus, but they saw Lazarus come back from the dead. And they still refused to believe. And, and, and I use that word refuse there on purpose, and that they made a conscious decision not to believe. Sometimes I think we have this sort of thinking that, you know, cousin Johnny would come to Christ if only he would experience a miracle, right? If only the Lord would work a miracle, then he would fall on his knees and he would repent and he would believe. But there's no guarantee of that. There's a great quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. I'll show you something, by the way. I got this recently, as long as I'm talking about Spurgeon. I got a Spurgeon bobblehead. <laughs> I think, henceforth, that's a Spurgeon-esque word, isn't it? Henceforth, when we quote Spurgeon, I'm going to have to bring him out, just so we can, <laughs> a little, little connectivity there. <laughs> Spurgeon said that, I'm going to set him here so I don't... I'm going to sit him there for Brian. <laughs> Spurgeon said that, sorry for the distraction. Now, now all you guys can do is look at 
look at the prince of preachers there. He said this. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. That's deep, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. Right? He says, right, the same sun, it melts wax and it hardens clay. We get that. The same gospel message. It kind of reminds me of the parable of the seeds, right? It says the same gospel message. Some, some hearts hear that gospel message and they're moved to repentance. Other people hear the exact same message and their hearts are hardened against the Lord. These people saw the same miracle and it caused some to believe and repent and it caused some to grow even more hardened to the gospel message. Guys, this is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in and it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to soften a person's heart. And it takes the willingness of that person for their heart to be softened. Some of the Jews refused to believe. They made a choice to reject Jesus. And what they do? They run off and tattle on Jesus. So verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I really want you guys here to see the heart of the leadership. I want you to understand where they're coming from at this point. They hold this council meeting. I heard somebody say, look, if somebody's rose from the dead, bake a cake. Don't have a council meeting, right? They hold a council meeting. And it's interesting, you see something here. Jesus really does bring unity to the world. The Pharisees were super conservative, right? If they were in Christian circles today, they would be the Bob Jones, independent Baptist, you know, King James only. And the chief priests, they belonged to the Sadducee party. They tended not really to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They, were, they were, tended to be fairly liberal. But we see that they were able to come together and unify for a common purpose, to oppose Jesus. Never forget that. At its core, church, the world is opposed to Jesus. And at its core, it's opposed to us because we serve and follow him. We're Christians. And you guys remember what Christian means. It means little Christ. And, and that name even that we bear, we, we, we bear it as a badge of honor, but it was admit, it originally intended to be a shameful thing, a mocking thing. The Pharisees say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I want you to note that. They didn't deny for a minute, did they? That Jesus worked all these miracles. Do you know why they didn't? Any ideas? They couldn't. Right? 
There was too much evidence. They'd seen it themselves. Too many people had witnessed it. Tens of thousands of people had witnesses, witnessed and experienced Jesus' miracles. They'd witnessed him feeding the crowds, walking on water, raising the dead, calming the storm. There was no lack of evidence. But there was a lack of faith on the part of the Jewish leadership. And they say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see the issue there? You see what they're concerned with? If Jesus continues, everybody's going to follow after him. If everybody follows Jesus, we're going to lose our position of power. We're going to lose that place of authority and influence. And to a degree, they had a legitimate concern. If Jesus made enough of a ruckus, it, 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 would, it, it would bring in the occupying Roman powers. And in those days, there was a term, Pax Romana. Pax Romana is Latin for Roman peace. And Roman peace didn't mean peace like tranquility. Roman peace was an iron-fisted peace. If there was any sort of an uprising or civil unrust, the Romans would come in and they, with, a, with a very heavy hand, they would brutally put down any opposition. And that's what Pax Romana was. And, and that's partly what they're worried about here. But one of them, Caiaphas in verse 49 said this. Well, let me start that over. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. That's sort of my life verse, by the way. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand, verse 50, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas stands up and he rebukes the whole crowd and basically says, look, you're a pack of ignoramuses. You're a bunch of fools. You're a bunch of simpletons. He, he doesn't pull any punches here. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That's a deep statement, isn't it? Better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's sort of the foundational message of the gospel, isn't it? One man dying so the whole nation, so the whole world wouldn't have to. And Caiaphas, he didn't know what he was saying. It says that he was high priest that year. And so he was prophesying. He didn't even realize what he was saying. But John got it. John realized what was going on. And, and, and we see that Caiaphas, he, he, he communicates right there on accident the heart of the gospel, substitution. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple minutes. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the na nation, not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. We're going to come back to that again in a little bit. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So we see that they already had it in for Jesus, right? We, we, we saw earlier that they wanted to kill him. Remember, there, there are a few in, other instances, but at this point, this becomes official government policy, right? The official policy of the church, as it were, is to kill Jesus. So Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jewish leadership. And and at this point, we sort of see this shift in John's gospel. The first ten and a half chapters, roughly, cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And the last ten and a half-ish chapters cover the last week or two of Jesus' life. This last little period of Jesus' life leading up to the cross, leading to Calvary. And we find Jesus, he's on the lamb. Right? He's out in the woods in this little town called Ephraim, hiding out. He goes there to spend some time with the disciples. I think probably this last week, really pouring into his guys, giving this final bit of, of equipping. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Passover is almost here. And remember, this is the Passover where Jesus would be crucified. So the people are looking for Jesus, wondering if he's going to show up, wondering if he's going to come to the feast. The leaders, the Pharisees, they give orders. If anyone sees Jesus, come report it because we need to arrest him. Right? Jesus has got wanted posters up in the post office. Right? This is the, the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the end of his incarnation. I want to close by spending the next few minutes looking at verses 49 to 52 again. And just to be clear, by few, I mean 15 or 20 minutes. Just so you're not starting to shift in your seats already. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should perish for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God all who are scattered abroad. If there's one word that sums up the Christian faith, It's substitution. And it might seem like there's other words that would better describe our faith. Maybe love or grace, mercy, judgment. And those are a lot more descriptive maybe. But substitution is the very heart of the Christian faith. Look at verse 50 again. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's better that one man be destroyed than the whole nation perish, Caiaphas says. 
It's better than one man should lose his life rather than everyone lose their lives. The theological term is substitutionary atonement, right? And atonement, it means to make payment for a thing, to be made right through payment. The other day I was in my backyard and I heard a couple yards over, somebody's got chickens. And I used to have this dog in Belize who liked to kill chickens. And so I was just thinking about that. It's a good thing that dog isn't here, right? But if my dog were to go over and kill somebody's chickens, I'd have to go buy new chickens for them, right? I'd have to to atone for, for that thing. I'd have to make payment for that thing. I'd have to pay my debt. That's what atonement is. Now, substitution is to switch something for something else, right? You go to a restaurant, the meal comes with fries. Can I substitute that for salad? Or for me, vice versa. <laughs> it comes with salad. Can I switch that around? Or, you know, a substitute teacher. They're taking the place of the teacher who's supposed to be there. And so we look at this substitutionary atonement. It's to take someone else's place, to make payment for someone else. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? He took our place in judgment. He took our place on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the cost that that we could never pay. He paid the cost so that we wouldn't have to pay it. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, of course, wasn't thinking about Jesus bearing the penalty of our sins. He was thinking about his position and power, prestige, prominence in society. He was thinking about Rome. He wasn't thinking about the heavenly kingdom. He wasn't thinking about the Mashiach, the anointed one who came to die for our sins. Verse 51, it says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas had a different thing in mind when he uttered these words. He was high priest, but he was not a godly man. Nonetheless, God spoke through him. He said, he said that Jesus would die for the nation. He meant it one way, but the Lord meant it an entirely different way. Something to note here, I think. The Lord often speaks through unbelievers. And it's sort of an accident on their part, right? They don't even realize that they're being used. They don't realize that they're being the voice of God. But God uses them. I think of the story in, in Numbers chapter 22. Remember, Balaam is, is kind of in cahoots with Balak. And he's trying to bring curses on the people of God. And, and he's, he's riding on his donkey, and all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord, which we know is most likely Jesus, shows up with a flaming sword. And old Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can see it. And so it says that the donkey lays down underneath them. 
and Balaam's cursing and he's whipping the donkey with a stick. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? What have I ever done? And you know what Balak does? He answers the donkey. Just strikes up a conversation. Like it's Shrek and donkey. Like it's nothing unusual. That's the oddest part of the whole thing. But the Lord uses a donkey to speak. He can surely use unbelievers to speak to us. You know, sometimes we behave badly and someone says, well, I thought you went to church. Is that how Christians behave? Right? They're just making an observation. But I tell you what, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through them. And they didn't even know it. Listen, truth is truth, no matter where it comes from. Truth is truth, no matter what the source. God uses this ungodly man to boldly proclaim the gospel message. Better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Second thing I want to note in verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John says, look, Jesus didn't just die for the nation. He didn't just die for the Jewish people. He died for the whole world, for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. He died for the world. It reminds you of John chapter 10 a little bit. Jesus says this in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And he says in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, look, I have, I have other sheep too that aren't of this sheepfold. Right? Jesus' ministry was primarily to the Jewish people at this point. But he says, I have other sheep. I have other people who aren't Jews. And I'm going to gather the Gentiles in as well. So John and Jesus both say that Jesus dies for everyone, not one specific ethnic group. And that's interesting to me. Jesus died for everyone, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember the song we learned as a little kid? Jesus loves the little children of the world, right? Red and yellow, black and white. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals because you are slain. And then he says, With your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and every nation, every language and the people and nation. We see that, that the blood of Christ was for all. But there's this, sort of this dichotomy in the church today. And it's been said, I think correctly, that Sunday mornings are the most segregated time in the U.S. And for the most part, that's true, isn't it? For the most part, there's white churches and there's black churches and there's Hispanic churches and there's Asian churches, etc. And now... I get it if it's a language thing. If you only speak Farsi or Korean, I get why you would go to a church that preaches your language. And that's not what I'm talking about here. 
But it's sad to me how segregated churches can be sometimes. And it's something that we talk about in our, in our staff meetings, how we can break down some of these racial barriers in our community. My kids go to Chase Lake right down the street there. And the principal told me that at Chase Lake Elementary, there are 27 languages spoken there. That's amazing, isn't it? We live in an incredibly diverse community. Well, this way, it's incredibly diverse. This way, not quite as much down towards Edmonds, but up towards 99 anyway. Crazy how diverse it is. You crazy how many, how many different Asian cultures there are and African cultures there are and people of, of Middle Eastern descent and how many Hispanics there are and Eastern Europeans and Indians and, and people from the South Pacific. It's, it's so diverse. So many amazing restaurants. Right? And, and why does the church not reflect that? Why don't our potlucks reflect that? Why do so many churches not reflect the demographics of the community that they're in? And, and I'm going to touch briefly on the immigration issue as well. Regardless of your position on the wall, or our president, or the politics, whatever, our command is clear. We're to love people. Whoever the Lord puts in front of us, we're called to embrace and love them. It's the government's job to protect its borders and its citizenry. It's our job as the church. It's your job and my job to love people in the name of Jesus. And that's it. And we ourselves, aren't we foreigners and aliens in this world? I don't know if any of you guys are older and remember Larry Norman. He had the album Only Passing Through, right? That's it. We're only passing through here anyway. And here in the Pacific Northwest, I think, I think that racism is a little quieter. I think it's a little more subtle and under the radar than maybe down home Mississippi or parts of Texas or Florida, you know but it's real. And the thing is, those attitudes can start to creep into the church. Heaven is going to be very diverse. Heaven is going to be filled with all types of people from every tribe and nation and language. And we're going to be there for a really long time. So you had better get used to a little racial diversity or you're going to hate the hereafter. What's more, Jesus died. He shed his precious blood for every race, every ethnicity. Who are we as the people of God to choose whom we're going to love and not love? Racism is a sin, unquestionably. But it's particularly vile and disgusting and wicked when it rears its head within the church, among the people of God. And it needs to be stomped out, and it needs to be eradicated. And if you find that seed of racism in your heart, you need to repent. And you need to take it to the Lord and ask him to change it, to create a clean heart within you, and to give you a right spirit. 
Because every human being has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is infinitely valuable in the kingdom of God. Every human being deserves our love, regardless of origin or color or culture. Everyone deserves to be ministered to in the name of Jesus Christ. John Piper said this. He said, racial harmony is not a social issue. It's a blood issue. And I like that. We, the people of God, have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have no right to look down on someone else whom Jesus Christ died for. You know, people say, I'm white, I'm black, I'm Korean, I'm Japanese, I'm Ethiopian, I'm whatever you are. That's fine. But first and foremost, you are a child of God, created in the image of God. You are a citizen of heaven. You're a pilgrim. You're an alien in a foreign land yourself. And you're only passing through on your way home. Our home is in heaven. The third thing I want to note, Jesus here is going to the cross. And this was always God's plan. Sometimes we can look at it and say, you know, things just got out of control. Right? There are political issues, leaders that opposed Jesus and decided to kill him. And God said, well, you know, how can we use this for good? How can we turn it around? Maybe, maybe we can use Jesus' death to redeem humanity. That's not the case. It was always God's plan. The cross was God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. And we need to know and understand that. It says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that from before the foundations of the earth, Jesus was the Lamb of God, slain for our sins. The cross, church, was never plan B. Jesus was born for one reason, to die. Jesus was born to die for your sins, for my sins. Jesus was born to go to the cross. It was intentional. The Father didn't just kind of predict what happened either. He unleashed the cross on Jesus. It was ordained and unleashed by the Father. It wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. Really, it wasn't even you and I that killed Jesus. It was God the Father that killed Jesus. And that's hard to think about. Kill, that's a violent word, that God the Father killed his son. But look what it says in Isaiah 53. Read through it, it talks about how Jesus was a man of sorrows, how he was acquainted with grief, how he was pierced, crushed for our sins, beaten, whipped, depressed, like a lamb led to slaughter. But look what it says in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will to crush Jesus. To cause him to suffer. To make his life an offering for sin. You see that? That was God's plan. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. Lastly, as we close. 
there are things in our lives, things that happen. We've been talking about this a little bit over the last few weeks. Things that happen that are just messed up, that don't make sense. Things that happen and we don't understand why. And we quote Romans 8.28, right? God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that's true. Sometimes God causes things to happen for reasons that we can't see and understand yet. God orchestrates what appears to be tragedy to bring about a greater good in the end. But it's hard for us sometimes, isn't it, to to look past the circumstances of the moment. And I think we miss sometimes what God is doing. But remember this. God sent his son. Jesus substituted himself for you in the place of judgment. Even when you struggle, even when you stumble, even when you fall into sin, even when the enemy heaps condemnation on you, even when the enemy whispers in your ear, you're not even a Christian. God doesn't love you. You're not worthy. Even then, remember one word. Remember substitution. Jesus died in your place. Jesus took all of your condemnation to the cross. He took every last drop of your punishment at Calvary. Jesus loves you specifically. Jesus died for you specifically. And in the face of your own personal failings and sin, take comfort in that. Take comfort that the heart of our faith is substitution. You have been pursued by God. You have been conquered by the love of God. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. God knew. He knew that you were going to fail. He knows all that you did. He knows all that you're still going to do. And still he chooses you. Still he chooses to save us, to love us, to accept us and to redeem us. And, and when we as believers, as we as the church, when we understand that, the enemy has no room for condemnation. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. And I just pray for anyone here who's just struggling, Lord, struggling in that cycle of sin and feeling condemned and questioning their faith. We pray that you would encourage them and remind them there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that while they need to deal with issues, that they're accepted and loved by you, Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus.